Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Greetings, everybody. Just a quick note before we get today's show kicked off. When we recorded this episode last week, Joe Biden had not yet thrown his hat into the ring officially. And now that he has, I'm sure we would have talked about that a little bit more, talked about a Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden matchup. But uh, in order to rectify that gap, I'm bringing on Branko Marchetic back on the show next week. That man has written more about Joe Biden than Joe Biden has written about Joe Biden. He's got like 30 articles in Jacobin dismantling the so-called progressive veneer of Vice President Joe Biden. So we're going to talk much more about that next week. Have no fear if you feel like there are some gaps in today's chats because we're not talking about Biden. And I think it even one, at one point I even dismiss the probability, the possibility that Biden would throw his hat into the ring. Look, I thought the guy knew better because I think we all know at this point he's going to get me tooed, right? He is a gropey son of a bitch. And there's no way that these stories don't come out in a big way very, very soon. But anyway, I digress. I've got Branko Marchetti coming on the show next week. We're going to talk about Biden, the real Biden, going back to the aughts, the 90s and the 80s. And it's, it's an ugly, ugly uh, horror show of a political record that man's got. Anyway, so that's coming up next week. In addition to that, earlier this week, I dropped a fantastic B-side. We talked about the ins and outs of neoliberalism. If you're one of those folks out there who hear this word neoliberal, neoliberalism, or any variant of the word all the time, and you're wondering to yourself, well, I guess I know that's like a bad thing, right? But I'm not exactly sure what that is. Or even if you've read quite a bit on neoliberalism and you want to do a deep, deep dive into the history, the theory, the political economy of neoliberalism, tune into that B-side. My patrons are eating it up already. They're enjoying the hell out of it. If you're not a patron, you're going to miss it. So if you want to get access to that B-side, all of our other B-sides, and you want to support this political project, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and smash that subscribe button. We have some generous rewards out there for our patrons. We can't do it without you. We appreciate your support, past and present patrons. All right, on with the show. Joining us on the line today is a very familiar voice. I believe he was on episode three of Dead Punnett Society way back when, back in the day. The OGs will know this man quite well. He's written for Jacobin, many, many other outlets, both mainstream and academic. He's an assistant professor of history at Princeton University. Matt Carp, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks, Adam. The good old days of 2016, man. They're back again. They are back again. Yeah, I mean, back in a big way. A lot's changed. A lot remains the same. We want to break some of that down. This is the Bernie Bros episode. We've been talking about doing this for quite some time now. Yeah, there were there were rumors yesterday. I saw online that you know what, what was it? Hillary said to an aide or something that she uh, she was thinking about. Uh, you know, she hadn't ruled out definitively in the same way that they they want a definitive statement that she will not run. So there is a chance that we could actually <laughs> repeat 2016. I can imagine a scenario where she where she feels like she has to re-enter the race, and then that would be man, the bros would really come out. I don't know, man. Then, first first yeah. time is tragedy. Second time is <laughs> I'm jumping off a fucking cliff. 
Isn't that what Mark said? I don't know. Anyway, something like yeah, that. Yeah, more or less. I yeah, can't. I yeah. can't take another repeat of 2016. But we've got a lot of similarities. We have a lot of advances, and we want to kind of break those down a little bit. Uh, but you were on the show almost two almost two years ago, talking about your first book. Uh, That's right. Yeah, yeah. This uh, was it. This great. Uh, this great Southern Empire what was the name of that book. I'm, I'm this vast Southern Empire. This Nothing great about it, but it was Southern large. Empire. <laughs> Quite a book. If you guys haven't uh, picked that up, it's a really, really good one for you history nerds out there. Check out that episode. You're working on some stuff right now about the origins of the Republican Party. It has a rich history in um, anti-slavery. And, I mean, there are a lot of revolutionaries there coming out of the 1848 uh, revolutions in Europe. Uh, really interesting history there. Talk to us a little bit about that project and how it informs your political perspective going into 2020. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, I did, I, you know, I sort of finished the first book, which is really about slaveholders and, and U.S. foreign policy and uh, kind of exploring the kind of international worldview of the slaveholding class. And, you know, thinking about that and then and then immediately I basically sent that book off in beginning of 2016 and then spent the next year almost or the next six months kind of just propagandizing for Bernie, just really falling into the the Sanders movement uh, online, but also, you know, knocking on doors and everything. And it's interesting, in some ways, both of those two things uh, contributed to this this next project, which really takes up the, the, the question of, okay, if slavery was so vast and so powerful and so economically dynamic in a brutal way, uh, it, it, you know, in, in, in ways that a lot of the recent scholarship is stressing, uh, and of course, is contested. And there's a lot of uh, different arguments about the relationship between slavery and capitalism that probably not going to go into right now, but politically, no, no, no. we can't slavery... move forward until we finally address the question, <laughs> how did slavery uh, relate to the capitalist mode of production? We're going to solve this right now. Uh, that's right. That's right. You and me, Fuck it. but let's do it. But, but, but just, just seeing the development of the, of the, of the anti-slavery Republican party, uh, from the perspective of these slaveholders in the 1850s, you know, you really are struck at the kind of the, the rapidity and the radicalism of this party's rise and how it kind of upended not just, um, a political system, which it did, uh, but, a kind of a political economic ruling class, uh, that really had dominated American political life, uh, and economic life across the, the early 19th century since, since the founding in a lot of ways, and it had only grown more entrenched. And the Republicans did represent a kind of insurgency from the margins of, uh, of national politics. You know, third party anti-slavery efforts had been happening since the 1830s, early 1840s. Um, um, but uh, in in the 1850s, they really sort of not only entered the mainstream, but kind of seized it from uh, the existing you know institutions and the existing political leaders. And uh, you know there are there are different there are lots of differences between that moment and this moment. But uh, fundamentally, I think that is still um, that story of uh, the rise of of, of anti slavery and its sort of emergence from activism to mass politics is is a story that has a lot of uh, a lot to say to this moment. So I'm, I'm, I'm writing this, this book, which is, you know, about the 1850s. It's not going to be super contemporary, but, uh, it's, it's grounded in, you know, research. I'm a historian, you know, that's, that's, I hope it doesn't read just simply like, kind of like, you know, Bernie Sanders vision of Lincoln. But, um, yeah. but I do think that reading that history, uh, has shaped to, to a significant extent, actually, how I think about, um, how I think about our, our moment. So the great historian, great renowned historian, I should say, uh, Dinesh D'Souza 
uh, was correct when he said that, you know, the Republicans today are the true bearers of uh, the legacy of anti-slavery and civil rights. Is that right? <laughs> there today's Republicans. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, that's what matters is the name. Uh, it's it. just a ballot line, right? It's just, it's just a ballot it's just line. A, it's like it's just a collection of letters and phonetics. That's <laughs> yeah, the only exactly. thing that matters. <laughs> It's a sound that, uh, yeah. that, 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 that emerges when you purse your lips in a certain way. That's right. That's uh, right. Yeah, no, obviously that's, that's ridiculous, but, um, and, and that stuff has been, you know, refuted a hundred thousand times, you know, in a hundred thousand tweets, let alone, you know, you don't even need books. Um, but, but, uh, but I, but the, 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 the kernel of truth though, is that, yeah, you know, the, the anti-slavery movement, was disruptive and did involve taking on all sorts of uh, established in- interests and institutions. And the Republicans are worth another look but on the from the left, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Not only from the perspective of the lead up to the Civil War with the revolutionary anti-slavery movement, as I mentioned, these kind of but a number of books written. Uh, I believe Robin Blackburn and a couple others have written quite a bit about the uh, revolutionaries that emigrated from Europe after the 1848 uh, kind of moment and became integral, uh, you know, members of the of Lincoln's army. You know, um, ra- these radical, re- so-called radical Republicans. Mm. Uh, really fascinating yeah. history there. Uh, but also to immediately after the Civil War is something that, you know, maybe you could comment on here. A number of guests that I've had on recently have talked about that moment that period of reconstruction as this really uh, vital period where wherein it seems like all of the trajectories that we're still currently finding ourselves enmeshed beneath and under and inside of sort of kicked off there, right? With the modernization of the state, the way that the state, uh, you know, and capitalism became uh, intertwined in regulating our lives in uh, both potentially liberatory and also uh, restrictive and oppressive ways. It's true. It's true. I mean, the problems of uh, the problems that I'm I'm considering this in this book on the 1850s are really the problems of, in effect, uh, from a from a kind of a, a democratic left perspective, are the problems of, of of entering the political mainstream and then taking power. Uh, the problems of the Civil War era after 1861 and then especially after 1865, in some sense, are the problems of of of, of using power. And I think, uh, you know, given where where Sanders is now uh, and where the state of the movement now, I, I still think, you know, we need to spend most of our time thinking about the first question about, um, you know, about getting gaining power. But I think uh, it's not too early. I mean, the, the, the last issue of Jacobin tackles this. And I think it's it, it's definitely not too early. I hope it's not too late, in fact, uh, to start thinking more seriously about about uh, the problems of, of sort of, you know, trying to trying to sort of carry through a political revolution, quote unquote, not simply by winning an election, but by doing something with uh, the power of the state. And yeah, Reconstruction, uh, it's not something I'm looking at in, in, in my current work, but it's uh, certainly, you know, up there, probably with the New Deal or probably surpassing the New Deal in a lot of ways uh, in terms of the sort of revolutionary use of, of the state to transform society. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, thank God we have the modern state and bureaucracy that we do have now. But the, the, the lack of that, those types of networks and institutional capacities really uh, haunted uh, the, the more radical aims of Reconstruction in a way that I don't think uh, we'll have to suffer in quite the same, quite the same fashion. So, um, yeah, yeah, we'll see. I mean, in my in my wildest visions, uh, I do have this idea about writing 
a kind of trilogy. Uh, you know, everyone wants to write a tr- trilogy, right? Oh, Isn't that yeah. like every yeah, little yeah. boy's dream yeah. is to sort of produce a trilogy? You're of practically sorts, Martin so Scorsese at that point. Really. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, so you do Godfather one on yeah. the Republicans in the fifties taking power. And then, yeah, then the second, the second book about the civil war itself and the kind of the, the military and the social revolution, if the first book was on the political revolution. And then the third book on Reconstruction, which would, you know, consider the sort of aftermath of this military revolution, the real social revolution on the ground in the South. And then in some ways also the the counter revolution and the sort of defeat of this, you know, what the boys called the abolition democracy. Uh, in but but I think all focus on the Republican Party as this kind of instrument uh, and this kind of in some sense like vessel of you know, America's greatest revolution. Yeah. I mean, that's, that'd be an interesting framing, knowing a little bit about the historical sort of the, the history fields and subfields. It's a shame that those three periods don't talk to each other enough. And there's a good reason for that because there's a whole hell of a lot of stuff you need to know. There's a lot of deep, deep dives into the re- research and the archives that you need to do if you want to consider yourself a specialist in any, any one of those three yeah, this. This would take, um, you know, this It'd would take, take this would be a life project, basically. Yeah, so yeah. we'll see if I'm It'd be up useful. for it. It'd be a useful thing to tie those together. You've got sort of the pre-revolution, the revolution, and the, and the aftermath. Anyway, moving forward, a lot, to, a lot of parallels here, no question. The reason why I wanted to start this off is not just because you're a, a professional and notable historian uh, at a prestigious university. You've got a lot to say there, but also because the parallels are quite stark. Talk to us about the before uh, over the moment that we currently find ourselves in, at some point, you know, there'll be a there there'll be a before, there'll be a, a during and an after. The, the, let's talk a little bit about 2016 and what led Bernie Sanders uh, to to be in that position in the first place. I mean, nobody saw it coming. People alluded to the fact that his announcement in 2015. It was like on the hall. It was on the the, the lawn of, of of Congress, I believe. There yeah. were like seven reporters there. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing. If you watch that video, it's still on YouTube. You can go up, and he kind of like he kind of just sort of typical Bernie. Sort of he's sort of barely, you know, his head is almost kind of like bent over. <laughs> uh, he's sort of that kind of classic Bernie, like forward lean, where yeah. he's just like headed somewhere. Uh, <laughs> and you know, he's always looking to this next thing. Like, why? What am I even doing here? He kind of like stumbles up to this podium, pulls out like literally, I think, a crinkled piece of paper from his back pocket is like, yeah, I'm running for president. Uh, I can't do a Bernie. I'm not going to try to do a Bernie. Um, but uh, but uh, but it, it, yeah, it was such a it was such a sort of, um, you know, he pulled it out of his pocket. And yeah, it's it's really interesting. I think this is actually a, a question that everyone's been talking about this in the news lately about, you know, it's, you know, Bernie, it's Bernie's party now, whether, you know, you know, everybody else who's who's running uh, the majority of the candidates anyway, so far seem to be running towards Bernie, or at least they're closer to Bernie's campaign in 2016 than Hillary's. Um, and I, 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 I do think it's worth remembering for a minute. And I, I have a piece coming out uh, in the nation, I think, where I'm going to try to get into this a little more. But, um, you know, how sudden this transformation was that, you know, you can talk about these broader currents, you know, the kind of crisis of the neoliberal economic order since 2008, you know, international terms. And you can talk about the, you know, 40 years of flattened wages and kind of skyrocketing inequality and decaying unions and globalizing markets and deregulation. You talk about all of those things. They're all true. They're all structural. You can talk about the reaction of 2008 uh, and the crash and Occupy and the rise of other kind of activist movements that were happening. But it's all it's still the case 
that as late as like 2014, 2015, there was no real prospect. There was no real reason to believe that social democratic politics were about to explode onto the mainstream. There was nobody. No, you can see it in the way that people treated the Sanders campaign, all of the pundits, et cetera. Um, and in some extent, you can see it in the Sanders campaign itself and how it how it sort of organized itself and what it saw as its kind of uh, possible horizon. No there was just no these 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 major kind of features of the of the political landscape today. I just actually did ran a little search as part of this article to a little test on this. The phrase Medicare for all didn't appear in the New York Times basically the entire year of 2014. Um, you know, some talk of single payer, but Medicare for all, which had been very much part of the conversation during the Obamacare debates six years previous, had basically faded out of national politics completely. Um, and anyway, uh, the point is, a lot of this stuff is still con- was, was very contingent on Sanders running, on Sanders' decision to run, and on the way, the specific way that that race broke down. Uh, and I really think not to be not to sort of fall into great manism or anything like that but i think we we need to be alert to you know as a historian i mean i think th- some of these things are contingent not rather than just entirely structurally determined and i do think it's a it was a really significant moment in the history of the left and the history of american politics when bernie made that decision to run and the race kind of emerged between Clinton and Sanders and set up such a strong contrast that set up, you know, everything that's followed. And, you know, we can talk about that. But that that moment is a crucial moment. Well, there's no question. I mean, uh, you know, it's funny, you know, back in 2015, you know, the left was what it was. We had the legacy, obviously, of the anti-globalization movement, the mm-hmm. legacy of Occupy, uh, some proud union fights, you know, that had kind of galvanized the left in various directions, trying to fight austerity, you know, uh, movements and marches against cuts, say, in, in uh, Britain. Mm-hmm. Britain were taking off in a big way. You know, uh, th- there were things were percolating in, a, in, a ver- in various directions. But I remember mm-hmm. as I a joined guy, DSA then in 2015. Oh, so you're, you're a hip, you're think. The original gangster hipster then. Uh, you know? I guess. I yeah. guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't do anything. I just was like, oh, it's cool. I can be a socialist and I'll, they'll yeah. send me a card. Yeah. You know, you got to carry like a card if you want to be yeah. a socialist. That's what they say. So, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about doing a Ph.D. at this point. I'm, you know, I, I got a couple of master's degrees under my belt. It's 2014. And, you know, I'm, you know it, just to put things into perspective as to where we were in that moment. Yeah. I was studying American empire and kind of the historical uh, trajectories of, of American empire, you know, under a guy like Leo Panitch. And the way that I was visioning my research taking shape was that, OK, we're going to see a We're going to see a Hillary Clinton presidency and she's going to reestablish and refound the American empire in a different kind of configuration. This is what her legacy is going to be. She's going to have eight years in office. There's going to be this new uh, sort of new liberal internationalism grounded in this kind of hawkish foreign policy. The extraction of, of fra- you know, fracking was a big thing internationally that uh, that she, the, the Obama administration was pushing. She pushed this in her role uh, as uh, the uh, secretary of state. Right. Under the Obama administration. And I kind of thought like this is what's going this is what it's going to be, you know, going forward. And, you know, I, I was thinking about projecting my dissertation in that direction. Like that's 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 the level of certainty that we sort of yeah. had that this was the way that things were headed. This is just the, the this, the, these were our sort of medium to long term prospects. And then boom, Sanders comes along and all of that is just shaken up overnight. And it's easy to forget that, I think. Yeah, no, completely. So yeah, there's there's one that assumption that Hillary was like this kind of invincible successor, uh, which we can come back to. 
Uh, but but even yeah, even within the left, even within the broad left center, I would say, because arguably that's where Sanders Sanders had, a, I think, a big influence on the left, you know, uh, you know, and in terms of people who identify as members of the left, who will identify as socialist, you know, who now will say, you know, democratic socialism is, you know, my political creed and so on. He's transformed, obviously, things like the DSA. But but he's also had a, a pretty big impact on the left center in some sense on, in people who identify as progressives. Uh, and, you know, there are multiple kind of tendencies and I think ideological, uh, you know, formations within that group. And some of which I think are more productive than others, obviously. But I think I think, you know, clearly the if you think about a lot of the other developments that I think are not necessarily related to Bernie within the left and within the left center in the last five years, imagine what it would be like without him. You know, if you just kind of oh, I think God. I think Bosco Sicard did, did a piece in The Guardian a little bit of, where he kind of did a you know, um, the wonderful life if Bernie hadn't run. But if you can imagine the kind of, um, the kind of currents that are not the sort of non Sanders currents on the left and where they would be and where the, where the left center would be without this kind of, you know, revived social democratic universalism, it would be, um, yeah, I don't know. It It wouldn't be, it would be, it would be Pottersville, wouldn't it? Bleak, bleak, my friend. Yeah. Anyway. Um, I'm glad we didn't end up in, on that timeline uh, for, for more reasons than one. Talk to me about some of the, the kind of uh, the, the historical excavation, uh, that, that work you're doing for this nation piece. You're going back, oh, yeah. you're reading uh, uh, Weaver's uh, sort of account of this story. Yeah. You're going back and reading Bernie's uh, earlier book, if, that, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, well, just, just, just his – actually, it's his, it's his post – it's his most recent book okay. I read. Okay. Um, but yeah, but Weaver offers an account of the campaign – um, you know, Jeff Weaver, Bernie's uh, campaign manager. And yeah, I mean, one thing that comes through, I mean, there are a lot of things to talk about, but uh, one thing that struck me, uh, you know, a lot of it is familiar. A lot of it is this kind of, you know, like, oh, let's, let's relive the, the, you know, the, the DNC, um, you know, debate schedule debate, or let's relive this kind of, you know, scandal over, you know, the voter lists and, you know, breaking into, did somebody have access to, you know, van or, uh, you know, and a lot of that stuff is like, oh man, uh, you know, I, or did, how many chairs were thrown at the Nevada convention you know, <laughs> like that? You know, a lot of this stuff is actually just like, uh, nightmares, um, you know, and the way in which the sort of media in a sense collaborated with, uh, the, and the DNC obviously collaborated with the Clinton campaign and so on, so on. But w- one thing that really emerges that I think is striking in retrospect, which I, I guess I did spend a lot of time banging on about this in 2016, but it actually becomes even clearer com- when we make the comparison to 2020 is how strong Hillary Clinton was, you know, and how well positioned she was. I mean, there was a reason that you were envisioning, you were building your dissertation around uh, Hillary Clinton and the American empire, because she, you know, her strength, and you you, you sort of see how strong she was by comparison with how sort of uncertain and tentative and kind of ungrounded people like uh, Kamala Harris or or Joe Biden or Beto O'Rourke are today. I mean, it was really unprecedented how, much the baton was being handed to her. She had, I went back and looked at this, she had over a, a thousand state legislative endorsements, basically, well, in 2015, before any primary. You know, she had, uh, like, I think 180 out of 232 uh, members of the House Democratic Caucus had already endorsed her, again, before any ballots had been cast. It's, it's, it, was, it was a coronation on 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 a level that was totally unprecedented and 
Uh, and, you know, and she had, you know, okay, so she had endorsements, she had power, she had, um, she had money, she was raising money out the wazoo from the very beginning, super PAC money, but also just regular court, regular campaign money. Uh, she'd raised like $76 million, like before, you know, Bernie even really got started. She had the she right was, husband you know, too. Let's not forget that. Exactly. And she was famous. She'd yeah. been on, here's another staff for you that I've just digging up a lot of this stuff. She'd been on more time. This is just stupid, but like she'd been on more time magazine covers than any non-president in, 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 in any non-president politician in the last, you know, it's 18 time magazine covers since, I mean, that's just a stupid index of things. You know, my grandfather, I've subscribed to time magazine. So I still see it as like this, (laughs) this like arbiter. It's on the aisles of every grocery store checkout line, you know, and you talk about, you know, any polling, you know, the, the, the most important thing with polling, at least early on for sure is name recognition. Everybody knows that. No. And she was famous as hell and famous. famous for Democrats, for democratic primary voters as being someone who the Republicans hated. So whatever you felt about her, whether you liked her or didn't like her, a lot of Democrats did like her. A lot of older voters, a lot of uh, female voters liked her. Even if you didn't like her that much, she was the Democrat. And the field was barren. You know, like uh, it's clear that that uh, that Barack Obama and others in the Democratic you know, leadership really worked the re- worked the sidelines to keep Joe Biden out of the race, to keep Elizabeth Warren out of the race, to keep, you know, probably people like Andrew Cuomo and Cory Booker and other kind of, you know, not necessarily that those people would have been so formidable, but a lot of the other kind of center or even center left progressive options just really weren't there. I think that's and so really what important it, though. I'm yeah, gonna jump in it was. Really quickly because you look at today's yeah. today's yeah. primary and what we've got eighteen to twenty who may end <laughs> yeah. up announcing by the time it's all <laughs> said and done. Yeah. You know, blue uh you know Bloomberg announced yesterday or the other day that he wouldn't be running, which is a little bit of a shocker. But but you look to 20, 2016 and that was not the case. And I think your reframe there is really vital because that wasn't just by chance. Right. I mean, Clinton yeah. had the, the strength and the power inside of the DNC and in, in broader society to ensure that there was a very narrow field of, of candidates. And so Bernie Absolutely. coming in and wrecking, crashing the party. As, uh, as yeah. the title of Heather Goutney's uh, fantastic book on that topic uh, really changed things in a way that uh, the Clinton campaign was not prepared for because that wasn't the way that it was supposed to be, right? No, it's amazing because because so for one, I mean, this was this was this is the kind of tragic or actually I think you know beautiful irony of this situation is right is that they cleared the field and that allowed you know, this, this strange kind of mushroom to grow that would never have been seen. And I don't know if I, I should really stick with this metaphor, but, uh, that would never have been seen in a kind of more, in a more crowded, in a more crowded kind of environment. And, you know, potentially Bernie could have been relegated into a kind of Kucinich role as the kind of angry guy who rants about things from the left. If there were a bunch of other, mm. you know, really dynamic candidates. I mean, I think he actually would have always outpunched his weight, but still, uh, the fact that there was this like radical simplicity. Uh, so you had the, the bad news was you had this juggernaut candidate who basically, as far as I can tell, really had no chance ever of losing. If you go back uh, and look at like what the strategic options facing the Sanders campaign were in 2016 um, in terms of its ability to compete nationwide on, with the Clinton campaign in terms, you know, resource to resource, uh, name to name, face to face. It just didn't it, 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 Hillary was going to win. But what he did, what that structure of that campaign produced is this kind of remarkable ideological contrast that we really hadn't seen uh, in, in a generation, at least since Jesse Jackson had run. And even then, 
that was that that race was you know bound up with there were you know there were seven dwarves running that year it was all yeah. it was really confusing and mm-hmm. um uh, and that was just a totally different political moment obviously over 30 years ago um uh you didn't. I mean, probably the best comparison would be something like when Ted Kennedy challenged Jimmy Carter, and you really had a kind of technocratic sort of version of liberalism up against the sort of old New Deal kind of uh, liberalism. And that's you know, this is a different moment than those moments in the '80s. And so you had Bernie representing this you know broad, this totally different political orientation. He had a totally different narrative. He had a different set of policies, and you know, the country really hadn't had a had a contrast like that. Uh, the Democratic Party hadn't had a contrast like that. Uh, and I think we should all be thankful that those ideas got this sort of broader audience because of it. Right. Sometimes you just can't bring out those debates if the options aren't on the table. Am I right? I, mean, yeah. I think, you know, uh, Representative Ilan Omar's, uh, you know, recent remarks about uh, the right wing, you know, sort of colonialist nature of uh, the Israeli regime under Benjamin Netanyahu is a really illustrative example here of where, you know, you force that conversation by placing the options on the buffet line, so to speak, of yeah. the discourse. Right. And that's not, you know, we can't achieve everything via the discourse. But no, it does matter. And I think sometimes leftists of all stripes are, are too uh, apt, are too eager to to deny the power of, of that sort of discursive uh, aspect. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think, I mean, you know, it's, it's obviously it's not enough. And it's obviously, I mean, we talk about all the limits here, but um, then I would agree with all of those kind of, you know, sort of, um, you know, you need you need a million other things to actually sort of get to 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 make to make progress. But 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 at the same time, I think uh, yeah, obviously we're having this conversation. We think this stuff matters, and I, I do think um, I do think like you know, just the viability, for instance, of Medicare for all is something that you know maybe in a world where Sanders doesn't run, um, there still would have been a kind of a uh, a, a left wing, uh, you know, sort of effort to sort of coalesce around that and put that on the table. But I think the confidence and the sort of commitment to it on the part of uh, the part of the broad left, and then the sort of apparent viability to uh, uh, the apparent viability of it and popularity of it in, in national surveys and the embrace of it on the part of center center left people um, is is something that we really. I mean, that timeline has has been so rapid. And I do think that the the discourse mattered for that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So we've talked a lot about 2016. I think your reframe of 2015 is really important here. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think, you know, Clinton, Hillary, that is obviously ended up kind of a clownish, buffoonish figure, uh, you know, by the time November 2016 rolls around, you know, sort of, uh, you know, head in the sand, uh, caught unawares, uh, completely revealed to be, you know, uh, an emperor who wears no clothes or whatever metaphors you want to throw <laughs> out there. I mean, she was a clown, you know, I mean, she went from this, you know, uh, this this queen in waiting. Right. Uh, to to a, a total buffoonish figure. And it's easy to forget the fact that, uh, you know, this this was never supposed to happen. And, um, you know, one of the things just to cue the listeners in on uh, inside baseball here, you know, I I rang you up and, and I said, you know, Matt, uh, I think this is going to be a good chat. But, uh, you know, I typically like to go into my interviews a little more prepared. And uh, <laughs> I don't really know, man. What are we going to talk about? What are we going to talk about? And I think there's a sense in which like this becomes kind of the new norm in such a way that you can very easily forget the enormous amount of of change 
uh, that's that that we've undergone that we've seen uh, over the past couple of years. Um, so let's talk about where we are today. Where do we stand yep. today in 2019? How are things different? Not only for the Bernie, uh, Bernie the man, uh, Bernie the campaign, but also how is how are the American people different in terms of obviously we've seen uh, the the we're on the tail end here of a blue state teachers strike wave which has been really positive, uh, obviously on the back of a red state strike wave in 2018. Uh, how are we different standing here in 2019 today? Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, there's a lot of, lot of, lots of, lot of ways to answer that question, uh, in terms of the sort of the, the state of left politics more broadly. And the, the labor stuff is, you know, among the most exciting developments of the last year for sure. And I think, uh, you know, this is a sidebar, but I, I do actually think Bernie could be even stronger. It's not to the point where we're just like everything I think about politics just comes down to like memos that i want to send to bernie uh it's it's (laughs) bad it's like not it's not it shouldn't go that way it should go the other way but i do think um you know being even more out in front on on labor stuff uh i know he's you know i know he's moving in that direction that the brooklyn uh announcement last week that he had a guy from united electrical which is uh or i don't know i forget the ue the the electrical union that's on strike in eerie come get so i think he's moving in that direction i really think that's a strength that 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 that's a natural strength and a natural kind of alliance that should should be built but politically electorally since we're we're trying to do the bernie bro thing how do how do things stand i mean i think that's a fair question a lot of people um some some people in sort of left media even are were uh, I would say even s- six months ago were pretty leery about bernie running and a lot of people were like really him again don't we uh, okay, so we like some of his ideas, but um, but I mean, we've got so many you know younger and kind of more dynamic candidates. So why do we need to sort of retread 2016 or retread you know bring out this older gentleman? Uh, you know, shouldn't he be headed off into the sunset or to pass the baton? It's the era of AOC and da da da. But carry him off I to the glue factory. I think it's easy to get that. I mean, this was yeah. the dominant rhetoric coming out of even progressive circles. Actually, well, and uh, I, I think it was. I think ago. I think if we're going to keep historicizing things, I think that's true. I think, and I think a lot has changed even in the last six months on this, and that somehow the announcement, even though there are these other candidates who will kind of, um, you know, Warren most most significant Elizabeth Warren most um, robustly, but. Uh, a, a number of other candidates, obviously Booker, Harris, Gillibrand have all signed up for Medicare for all, at least paid lip service to it, um, you know, and, and other programs like the job, job guarantee or uh, college for all, et cetera. Um, you know, why do we need Bernie in particular? But it, it does seem like actually what's happened. Uh, it's, maybe this is just, you know, I, this is my own emotional narrative, but it does seem like None of those uh, other uh, – it's great that these other candidates are, you know, saying, you know, acknowledging these programs and in some cases supporting them, um, these ideas. But obviously Bernie still stands apart and we can talk about why. But it seems like actually none of them has really – for all the talk about their dynamism and youth and excitement, none of of them has actually seemed to sort of take the – I know it's very early, but – uh, and n- no one has sort of captured anybody's imagination in the way that even Bernie's announcement seems to have done in terms of the money he's raised and the crowds he's brought out. And it's clear that he's going to be a formidable figure in this race and he's going to have access to uh, a lot of that energy and a lot of that uh, drive, uh, a lot of, you know, volunteers and a lot of uh, fundraising that 
that uh, because people still see him as the as the conduit of these of these ideas. I want to jump ahead here, but it's a way of sort of bringing out this contrast between 2016 and 2018. So you can sort of riff on the 2016 version of this question. But looking forward after that, you know, can the DNC stop this juggernaut? Yeah. In the way that they did in 2016. Well, I mean, look, if we're trying to, I mean, okay, the way that I think the race is going to break down, it seems like, is, um, you know, like you said, there are what? There's 14 in the race now. Maybe there's going to be 18 before we're said and done. And it, it seemed it seemed it does seem to me. I mean, this is the way I see it, that there's still Bernie and everybody else. And Warren, maybe you could argue, has a middle has some kind of, you know, straddles that 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 category and that she is attempting to appeal to some of the people that Bernie has got. But, you know, I actually you know, I'll actually defend Elizabeth Warren to to some people from the left and in, 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 in a lot of ways. But I think she's you know, I think she's a very good senator. And I think I'm actually glad that she's in the race because she's thrown out all sorts of policy stuff like wealth taxes and so on that, uh, you know, in some ways she's ahead of Bernie on that stuff. But politically, I, I don't think it's, it seems clear that she's not going to hack it. I Maybe that's too early to say this, but it feels like um, her campaign is not has not generated any of that energy. And uh, you see it in the polls. You can see it in fundraising. Um, you know, she I don't think she's going to have a major impact on this race. So I think the just to game it out pre, you know, uh, in, in a totally irresponsible way, the issue is going to be, can these other 15 candidates or whatever winnow down to rapidly enough? to develop, to create an anti-Bernie, you know? I mean, because if Bernie gets through this time, I, I did tweet sort of stupidly about this earlier today, but like, you know, I think it's going to be along the, the sort of Trump path where he kind of has his core support. Um, it's not, you know, Trump wasn't getting, wasn't winning majorities early on. He, you know, I think he, he was, you know, he was getting his core support and a lot of the other tradi- voters were divided within, w- between all the other Republicans. And then he continued to sort of, you know, uh, sort of expand that base of support as he, you know, became more serious and more viable, not more serious, but he's, he, 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 he continued to stay in the race and his popularity was not diminished by all of his gaps and scandals and the Republicans winnowed down, but, but pretty gradually, if they had, if, if everybody had fled the race much earlier and had just been Trump against Rubio, I, I still think Trump would have won, but uh, it might have been the, things might have been a little bit different. And I think that will be the question for the Democrats is how rapidly do the Bidens and Harris's and O'Rourke's and Gillibrand's and Booker's and Klobuchar's coagulate around uh, a single kind of anti-Bernie? Now, let me ask you, though, I mean, if they're able to do that, and I actually, I, I'm not sure that they will. I think the egos yeah. in that room are way too big. I mean, yeah. my, my sort of, if we want to, we want to see, you know, we're getting into March Madness here. Let's, let's, uh, yeah, make some no, I know, I know. It's fun, but it's, yeah. uh, it's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's all for fun and games here, just for shits and giggles. We'll have to sort of disavow a lot of this six months from now and maybe uh, <laughs> hang our heads in shame. But I think this yeah. one is going to hold up. I think we're going to see, uh, we're going to probably see, uh, Harris, Sanders, and Gillibrand. Uh, I think Gillibrand's going to hang on for for probably longer than she should. But then again, though, mm. I mean, I, I expected Kamala Harris to take a lot of the wind out of that sail, and it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened. She hasn't uh, won the the black vote. Uh, a poll just came out today that Sanders is beating Harris two to one in likely black Democratic pr- uh, primary voters, which is terrible news for Harris. 
And uh, Gillibrand still has that, you know, Midwestern wine mom, wine mom, vote, you know, which <laughs> yeah, is so I heard, huge. I heard your interview primary. with um, you were talking to Dan, Dan, Daniel Marins about this, right? Who's yeah, on yeah. the trail on the trail with Gillibrand. Yeah, no doubt. Um, I mean, she's she's big with those he wine. Seemed to moms. think she was she was looking good in Iowa. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure on Gillibrand. I mean, how does she? But what about Amy Klobuchar? There are all so yeah, many. Yeah. Like, it's there's a say. lot of there are a lot of flavors of that kind of ice cream. Yeah. They're <laughs> going to kneecap each other. Which so your yeah. your original point stands, and I think you're absolutely right. They're they're going to kneecap each other. But given that it shakes out, and there is some kind of formidable candidate, let's get back to this comparison between 2016 and the present. Yeah. It, can can the DNC uh, take down Sanders in 2020 the way that it, that they did in 2016? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I mean, I, I, I actually think the X factor here is uh, it's hard to get away from March Madness territory once you've gone there. But yeah. I think the X factor is is Biden a little bit because a lot of people are very confident that once that first of all, there's a small chance he won't run. Uh, I'm not 100 percent sure he will. I'm not I don't want to do psychology, but I feel like Joe Biden is not somebody like um like Bernie, who, um, you know, thinks that running the country is the most important thing he can do with his life. There's a lot of other things he might want to do. So but if he gets in, a lot of people seem very confident that he'll immediately collapse because of various gaps or indiscretions or, you know, his record will be revealed. He's handsy. He's got a racist. Record he, exactly. A exactly. There things. are all these ways in which I but I, I actually think a lot of that criticism might be very online. And and that's and by saying that I mean you know not very useful in assessing uh, a a candidate's actual strength with voters. Uh, there was there was an interesting thread by a guy who was at a, set, uh, a focus group in South Carolina uh, with a bunch of black women voters, black women Democrats, and they were reviewing a lot of like the hits on Joe Biden. And it's like oh Joe Biden's record he uh, was bad on. Uh, school integration, he opposed busing. And they're like, what, are we supposed to believe he's a segregationist? Come on. You know, we know he's, you know, he was a vice president. He's Obama's uh, right hand you know, man. He's like, you know? it's like Obama's third term or something like that. And, you know, even Anita Hill didn't move them so much. They 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 voted like 70-30 Biden over Harris, this, this room. I think Biden might be a little bit more formidable than we think. And at least, you know, I, I think he could be strong in the South. I think he could be strong with, you know, the kind of, pragmatic voters, whether they're older voters, whether they're African-American voters, whether they're just, you know, just just be Trump voters. Uh, I'm not sure that he'll sink. So but I can imagine a scenario where it's Bernie Biden and Harris kind of and there and 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 it could go in any. And if it's in that case, to come back to your question, I don't know how the DNC can actually ensure that Bernie won't emerge. I'm not sure that they that they that they can or that they will want to even to some extent. I mean, I, I, I just don't think that that's I think I think that the, the strength of the Democratic Party in its the strength of the Democratic Party elite is not actually in its um, structures and institutions or the fact that they have like some kind of magic buttons that they can press some staircase that, you know, some book, 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 bookcase that spins around yeah, and opens yeah. a secret portal and Bernie is eliminated. Um it's. I don't think it's about that. I think it's There's more no shark about tank the, with lasers or anything like exactly. that. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. They don't have any like secret weapons, but they do have. I think what they have is a kind of relatively um, uh, a voter base and a kind of um, activist sort of elected official politician base that is largely deferential to a lot of the leaders. So, and I think that's their strength. But I don't think that gives them a secret mechanism. Um, that, that, so I think in the case of where it's a hotly contested race with three or four candidates, uh, 
And, you know, obviously, if Bernie goes to the convention and doesn't have a majority, then uh, he's not going to win at a, conv- at a he's not going to win a brokered convention or something like that. But but if, if he can, if the race winnows and he grows in popularity and he really presents himself as a plausible candidate, I, and which I think he has every there's every possibility that he might. I don't think they'll um, they'll be able to sort of kneecap him with any secret mechanism. Uh, we'll see. Maybe that's maybe that's overconfident. But I don't I don't think that's I don't think that's where Democratic Party power resides exactly. I think they would if it looked like he was going to win, um, they would seek to accommodate him and defang him in all sorts of other quieter ways that we would have to contest. But I don't think it would be through um, I don't think it would be through some sort of direct. I don't think that he would have like, the you know, some sort of super delegate overrule or something like that. Right, right. I, I hesitate to continue on this with this March Madness yes. kind of tack. Yeah, I'll, sorry. I'll have, I'll yeah, have to, no, that's just fine. This. <laughs> this is very interesting. I'd love yeah. to keep doing it, but we'll have to throw it over to, to uh, Dick Vitale if we keep going here for much longer. <laughs> uh, it, How about it, that diaper dandy, Tulsi uh, Gabbard? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's awesome, baby. It's not. It, no, this is not awesome, baby. We got to get off of this. Uh, <laughs> so... <laughs> Moving along, though, I mean, I think this is a really important question for us to ask ourselves because we want to be nimble and agile, you know, uh, you know, to respond to these types of things. I think that we we saw the strength of Clinton was, you know, expressed by the way that she was able to to cohere the, a certain kind of leadership block inside the DNC and in the media class as well uh, to try to, to ensure her victory there. And, and that 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 uh, alliance has been it has been shattered to uh <laughs> To uh, pull, a, pull, mm-hmm. a, pull a, yeah, a little funny Ooh. from the title of that book. Anyway, yeah, uh, everybody groan. All right, and uh, at the <laughs> book and the and and that uh, historical. What the fuck? Can we let's? All right, can we talk about that for a second? This failure, this epic failure in 2016. To what extent do you think that has led to Sanders' popularity, especially among the centrists? I mean, the the shame, yeah. the shame of that loss to a, to a man like Trump. I think it's, I mean, I, I do think it's, it's huge. I mean, it's interesting, you know, I don't know. We thought everybody on the left thought, uh, I remember talking to Matt Christman of Chapo Trap House the night after, you know, the night of the election. And it seemed like, oh, we're doomed. You know, our, our gig is over now because the left or any kind of, I mean, everybody, I know, I know a Jacobin, uh, was all geared up to sort of be able to be in this like kind of nice position of lobbing grenades at a Hillary Clinton administration, um, you know, which was kind of which would be kind of ineffectual and, you know, expose the kind of, you know, the sort of incapacity of liberalism to sort of, you know, you know, technocratic liberalism to do anything, blah, 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 blah. But but yet and we thought that Trump's victory would kind of you know, I mean, for some and for some on the left, this has happened. You know, some are, you know, some people have, uh, you know, think that this this has happened, that actually instead um, there's been this sort of monomaniacal focus on Trump and it's sort of deformed any kind of like left of liberal, you know, political line or analysis or anything like that. And, uh, you know, there, there's some truth in that. But actually, I think what you're saying turned out to be truer that that um, that Clinton and Clintonism um, was kind of it was the it was the, the the final and kind of comprehensive unanswerable refutation of that that style of politics and whatever the you know however the left has dealt with this and however liberalism generally has dealt with you know Trump and we can be critical of all those things the truth is it was the kind of final blow 
to this to this uh, to the whole theory of politics that had animated to some extent Bill Clinton, Barack Obama. I mean, you saw this interview. Did you see Brad DeLong's interview uh, in Vox the other day? The kind of reigning, you know, one of the sort of you know economists who was a sort of paladin of uh, of neoliberalism. I mean, he he owns that phrase. Um, kind of explaining, you know, in his view, the political failure of of kind of neoliberal. Uh, neoliberal economics and the, the sort of neoliberal politics that went along with them. And that, you know, you saw that with the frustration of Obama's administration. And uh, you saw that with Clinton's, you know, kind of electoral turd. And uh, <laughs> that's not the best way to put it. No, you saw that with the bed. There's no question. She yeah. shit the bed, man. And, and right in so front that of all of us. We all saw we it. We something were there. else. Yeah. 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 I think that's contributed to it greatly. Let's talk in the la- in the final minutes here. We have so much we could say. I mean, I think, you know, I'd say, you know, we could dedicate a, a, an entire episode to the question of like what will or could or should uh, Bernie Sanders do as uh, as president of the United States. Yeah. Uh, the, the recent Jacobin issue tries to delve into that. Uh, but, you know, more explicitly, I'm going to continue doing that for the next, you know, I don't know, two, two or three years. So mm. uh, that's that, that's an ongoing project that the entire left needs to sort of uh, own. But this mm-hmm. takes me into my next question. You know, the, one of the things that are, that's hot on the minds and the tongues of, and, the, and the fingertips on and the online spheres of many socialists and leftists and progressives is this question of endorsement. I myself would love uh, to see us, uh, you know, go beyond this kind of um, horse race style of American politics, wherein we kind of uh, hedge our bets. We do a little horse trading, a lot of horses here and this metaphor. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> we, we, you know, we wait it out to see, you know, who's going to get the right endorsement, you know, justice Dems, has notoriously kind of uh, they're they're waiting to see. I mean, we all kind of know, but oh, like they're not going to endorse. Yeah. They haven't endorsed Bernie yet. No, they haven't endorsed Bernie yet. They even kind of had a statement uh, that came out uh, last week, wherein they were sort of holding off, you know, and then kind of playing coy, yeah. uh, hard to get. And you sort of wonder the same thing about a, an organization like Democratic Socialists of America or or others, right? Uh, my position on that is we need to endorse, we need to endorse early. We need to take ownership of this movement to try to steer it in, in a more principled and effective direction. Uh, what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I saw, I saw, I, I'm now remembering the, the Justice Dems sort of putting that out there. And, um, and I think I saw uh, that, that, that article that, uh, maybe it wasn't the article that shall not be named about socialists in Brooklyn, uh, but there was another article, I think, maybe in 538, where they were interviewing yeah. Sean McElwee. Yeah, and he was like, oh, the left, you know, we need to, you know, maximize our influence by, like, withholding our endorsements. So yeah, they'll, you know, so these candidates will come to us or something yeah. like that. I mean, I think that's 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 just nuts. Um, the the I mean, for one, no, you know. There's, there, it's not the case that if DSA or the Justice Dems or whatever other organization or Sean McElwee on Twitter were to sort of suddenly start supporting uh, one candidate, like actually the left candidate, Bernie Sanders, that all the other candidates would 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 su- suddenly sort of cease to care about, you know, the political pressure that they could produce. You know, that pressure exists or it doesn't exist. It's not like it can be sort of tactically maximized by like being coy on a date or something like that. It's, 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 it's whether you can actually summon, um, you know, money, volunteers, energy, excitement for a set of ideas, or you can't. And I don't, I, I don't, I don't think like trying to be, you know, um, 
Yeah, exactly. Or just trying to be sort of like a master tactician about this. Yeah, three-dimensional um, chess to, style. Yeah. yeah, to me, well, to, to be honest, frankly, that that kind of attitude, I mean, I guess it makes sense in some sense if you're thinking about the Justice Dems or whatever. These are, these are people who are thinking about uh, sort of presuming that um, probably Sanders won't win and they're wanting to sort of put themselves in the best position to have, if not influence, uh, they would maybe put it that way, but or at least to have some kind of relationship with a Kamala Harris-led Democratic Party, say. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, without calling it, you know, careerism, um, I, I do think we have to be aware of the sort of the pitfalls of that approach, uh, as opposed to, I don't think that's actually a use of influence. I think that's, a, that's exactly where the threshold between using your influence and being influenced, you know, by power, using your influence on power and being influenced by power, uh, I think emerges. Um, if a democratic primary isn't a time to actually boldly support a set of ideas and a set of and a and a style of politics uh, that that distinguishes somebody like Sanders from uh, the records and the sort of um, and the and the rhetoric of somebody like uh, Harris or O'Rourke. Uh, then then when is you know? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I, it's just it seems to me uh, incredibly short sighted, or just yeah. You know, I mean, you know, again. Let's let's go back to 2015. Let's remember what it was like to be a leftist of any kind uh, in the United States in 2015, and, and think about what it is like today. To and, and that's all we need to really know in terms of how how decisive and crucial this can be in radicalizing a vast you know a number of people over the next year or so. Um, the good news is the good news is I think Bern, I actually think it doesn't matter very much, and I don't want to be you know taking swipes at Justice Dems or McAwee or whatever because I. I don't think it matters. I, I think they, they could do what they think is right. I think Bernie's bigger than the DSA. He's bigger than the Justice Democrats. He's bigger than Data for Progress. He's bigger than all these things. Yeah, but that's he also the problem, has isn't it? 13 that's... million supporters from last time who are at least, a, you know, he already he raised, you know, what, $10 million from hundreds of thousands of people already. He, unlike all of those other forces, is actually doing mass politics and, um, I don't know. So I, I don't know if how much he needs uh, those kinds of endorsements right now. Yeah, either, I, think, either. I, I think you're exactly right. But, to, you know, my argument sort of centers on this point here where it's like and that's precisely why it matters that we endorse and that we take responsibility for this movement, because it's, you know, t in, to my mind, you know, to put it in a glib, to put it quite glibly, like, does it matter if you find yourself over the edge of a cliff? Right. Does it matter whether or not you endorse gravity? No, it doesn't. You're going to go splat, whether you like right. it or not, whether you want to or not. You know, wily e. coyote style splat. Uh, so, in, in my view, you know, it's going to go on with or without us. We need to figure out how to take leverage and responsibility uh, to try to steer it in an effective direction. Because there are a lot of ways that this thing could go wrong. You know, so let's talk about really quickly. Let's let's sign off here with a quick analysis, a cautionary tale of the kind of terrain that Sanders would face uh, should he get through the primary, of course, into the general, uh, and also, you know, very briefly, should he find himself in the in the Oval Office? Yeah, I mean, it's actually interesting at the, uh, the Jacobin issue uh, event, and then in the issue itself, there's a lot of talk about the. There's a sort of a fast forward to the to the to the you know Bernie in the Oval Office, but you know, we've already gamed out the primary. I think the general election obviously would be, you know momentous and probably frankly fucking terrifying because the worst possible outcome 
uh, being honest, is Bernie somehow kind of navigates into the Democratic nomination and then, for whatever reason, uh, loses. I mean, I think that would still be the kind of, as far as I can tell, just just in terms of the, the horse race options, um, the most the most demoralizing. I know uh, I, I, I think he would, you know, I, I'm a firm believer in Bernie would have won. And so that sort of means that you have to just pound your chest and say Bernie will win. But an election is an election. You know, anything could happen. So without gaming that out, all I'll just say is it's really important that he fucking wins if he gets the nomination. The If he's in office, OK, that's, you know, obviously, you know, I was people were, you know, there's a lot to say about this. It's hard to do in a brief period. I think the first thing is, is the, as the Jacobin issue points out, there are a huge amount of very routine kind of atrocities that the U.S. government kind of commits as a matter of business, you know, whether it's civil asset forfeiture, whether it's kind of, you know, student debt uh, driven up by uh, for-profit lenders, whether it's, um, you know, kill lists, uh, in, in, you know, you know, uh, in, in foreign countries, well, um, there are all sorts someone of like Elliot Abrams to special envoy. And, you know, exactly. Venezuela. Exactly. Yeah. There are all sorts of things that, e- or even things that Obama wouldn't have done, you know, Guantanamo, et cetera, that, that I think a president Sanders could really get to work on right away with executive orders, with just administering the government. Um, and I know you've talked to other people who know more about the foreign policy side, but I think there's an enormous amount, obviously, that can be done there. Uh, notwithstanding some of the challenges in staffing the institutions, there's still a lot that could be done. Uh, on on in terms of like how much of his sort of big social democratic agenda he could get through right away, I think it's a tough question because you know a lot depends on the Senate and whether there's even 50 votes in the Senate is a very open question. I think I think you'd have to. Um, pre- be prepared for a period where Bernie can't just immediately get off it, into office and pass Medicare for all. I think obviously, even in the best case scenario, that would be a uh, a long, bitter fight. Uh, it might require midterms and another and a reelection. It might require, if you think about, you know, the New Deal, Roosevelt's New Deal didn't didn't you know not exact parallel, but a lot of that stuff didn't happen until his second term in office. Um, it's a long, it's a beginning of a long struggle, in other words, not, uh, you know, Bernie's in office now, give me my cake. Uh, it's, 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 uh, obviously it's a, it's a, it's a long fight, but I don't think, I disagree with the, with the pessimists who think that Bernie being in office would, you know, inevitably lead to disappointment and ruin because he couldn't get anything done. I still think that's a struggle we want to have. Do you think the left has the stomach or the patience or the mindset uh, for this kind of long, medium to long haul um, approach, because my fear is, uh, my fear is, my God, uh, we're fucked. Because the left that I know uh, doesn't have that kind of I'll cut, hell, I'll say it, uh, sophistication uh, to be able to look at at something in a nuanced, uh, careful, strategic uh, uh, sort of sense. It's it's either uh, you're you're one of the goods or or, or you're one of the bads, right? Um, that's one of my fears. What, what's your take on that, quickly? Yeah, I mean that's a it's another big question. I don't I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, what what is the left, you know, anymore, right? It's it's such a it's such a sort of um it's always been such a kind of a dissonant collection of of uh of 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 sort of voices and ideas and approaches. And I think obviously um 
uh, I, I mean, I think under a, a sort of a Sanders presidency or in a imagining a kind of decade long struggle through Sanders and through other um, sort of Sanders aligned forces, there there got to be some moments where the left loses its head, maybe most of the time. But I still think being involved in, in, in some kind of mass politics is, you know, it could be disciplining in some ways. And I, I still I still just I, I'd, I'd rather be in that fight than just be shut out and feel like we were right on the sidelines, you know? No question. These are good problems to have, as I like to say yeah. on this show uh, over and over again. And in fact, I think maybe that formulation is owed to Bernie Sanders' 2015 run. Uh, I think so that's probably where we started to have all of these good problems to have uh, in the first place. Uh, uh, before that, it, they were just they were just fucking problems, man. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> there weren't a lot of good problems. They were just problems. Yeah. Uh, so I think he's really turned this thing around. Matt Carp, thanks so much for coming on Dead Punnett Society again. You've got a you got a piece coming out in the Nation magazine next week. Give us a quick pitch for that, a quick preview. People should look out for that for sure. Oh, I don't know if it's going to be next week. We'll see. We'll see when it when it when it pops out. But it should be. It will it will appear this spring. Just uh, just my review of the couple books on um, the 2016 campaign and where we go from here in in Bernie's in Bernie's phrase. Nice. Okay, so it's a much more expansive kind of review piece then. Yeah, it's just a review essay. I mean, it's not a it's not a full on article, but it's a it's I don't know four thousand words. Something so like that. you read Jeff Weaver's book, so we don't have to, in essence. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. Well, you've done us you've done us a, another service, uh, <laughs> Mr. Carp. Thanks so much for joining us on Dead Punnett Society. Everybody, uh, check out that article in the Nation. And uh, Bernie Bros, we're out. Thanks. And that concludes today's episode. Thanks again to Dr. Professor Wing Commander Matt Carp for joining us on today's program. Always informative, always a fun guy to talk to. He's a wealth of knowledge and information, historical, political, and otherwise. Next week, we've got some fun guests lined up as well. I've already bagged an interview with Micah Utrecht, who is like something like associate lead head editor. I don't know what his fucking title is. He's like head editor at Jacobin. He is the Biden to Bhaskar Sankara's Obama, if you will. And he's going to join us on the show. He's talking about a really great essay he wrote and published with his co-author, Barry Eidelin. It's called U.S. Union Revitalization and the Missing Militant Minority. We're talking about the key ingredient to a union and left-wing revitalization in the United States, which is this militant minority, which is these kind of uh, embedded, knowledgeable connected, principled socialist cadres inside of the union movement, uh, which have always been necessary in a left-wing socialist upsurge. And we're going to talk more about that. Micah lays down a B-side with us as well. It's going to be available for the patrons next week. He's talking all about the sweeping socialist electoral victories in the city of Chicago. It's criminally underreported. There's been some good writing on this so far, but it's uh, mostly unknown to the broader public, and Mike is going to talk about what went down in Chicago and what's likely to go down in the wake of some of these runoffs that are happening in early April. That's going to be available to patrons. I've got a weekly rundown coming out later this weekend. A lot of really important news items to cover. A lot of shenanigans have unfolded over the past week or two, and we're going to talk all about that on the rundown. A News and Views podcast from a socialist perspective, and that's available to Patrons of the Dead Pundit Society at the $10 and up level. I work a little extra harder for your generosity. I can't do it without you. I, I, 
I really, I really hate the fact that I have to put anything behind a paywall. Uh, it sucks. I don't, I don't want to do it at all. I, I want to put everything out for free all the time. Um, but I don't have advertisers and this is the only way that I make money. I put, you know, 70 to 80% of my content out there available free of charge. You don't have to pay me a dime to listen to it. Uh, I do have to put some of the other stuff behind paywalls, unfortunately. So this, uh, can be a full-time job because it is a full-time job. It's a six, seven day a week job. And, uh, you know, we live in capitalist society. I got to feed, clothe, and shelter myself. So thanks to all of my patrons for making it possible for me to do that while I bust my ass to produce all this content for you guys. Lots of stuff coming your way, patrons. Uh, one or two at least. Sh- certainly, <laughs> there's going to be an A-side next week. But there may be two free episodes coming out next week as well. We'll see. So I'll see the rest of you patrons in a couple of days. Everybody else, enjoy your weekend. And thank a class struggle trade unionist for that weekend while you're at it. All right, until then, Dead Pundit, out. Oh, this you crazy mother...